you know, I had never, like many people, especially people who adopt dogs and maybe get them at an older age, I'd never lived with a very young puppy. And with every dog I've lived with, you know, I wondered about their early days and weeks and months. Welcome to When We Talk About Animals, a Yale University podcast. I'm Jennifer Skeen. And I'm Viveka Morris. At the start of the COVID-19 pandemic, while our worlds were shrinking to the bounds of our homes, people's lives turned inwards. For many, this meant sourdough starters, home gardens, and quests for elusive toilet paper. But for millions across the country, this spurred an even larger leap, one bringing unknown changes, new responsibilities, and oh so many licks. Whether for added companionship, purpose, comfort, or the sheer magical joy of being with a dog, people filled out their families and their lives with puppies. As writer Margaret Rankle once put it, in any household, the true master of hope is the family dog. Boy, did these puppies have a whole lot of responsibility riding on their wiggly haunches, all while they too were coming into their own. Puppies develop into dogs at astonishing speed. By the time a puppy is just a few weeks old, the same age when human babies are still figuring out how to keep their heads from falling over, dogs have mastered object permanence and depth perception, cognitive leaps that remain far off for their human counterparts. They've gone from pink-nosed fuzzballs completely dependent on their moms for care to expressive explorers with big personalities and complex emotions. Within months, they are leaving their own families and moving into ours, shaped in ways that few of us think about or recognize by these early weeks before we knew them. As our guest, the world-renowned dog cognition expert, Alexandra Horowitz writes in her profound and totally delightful new book, The Year of the Puppy, puppies have a distinct and ever-developing point of view, and we have much to learn from trying to understand how puppies encounter and make meaning of the world. Dr. Horowitz observes, documents, and revels in the first year of life of one pup, Quiddity, who transforms over weeks and then months into her family's particularly big-eared, spectacularly eyebrowed, exquisitely sensitive, and rambunctious new bearded lady. Through stories of Quid, Horowitz paints an intimate, rich portrait of the earliest days of a dog's life and interactions, from puppy piles and muted senses, through the puppy equivalents of infancy, childhood, adolescence, and the teenage years. In the process, Quid becomes a beloved part of her family. Dr. Alexandra Horowitz is a New York Times bestselling author of multiple books on dogs, the host of the wonderful podcast Off Leash, and the founder and leader of the Dog Cognition Lab at Barnard College. She combines deep scientific expertise with the doggedness of an investigative reporter, the gift and imagination of a master storyteller, and the infectious enthusiasm of, well, a puppy. She has devoted her career to trying to answer the question, what is it like to be a dog, and has inspired people around the world to try to better understand the complex inner lives of our closest quadrupedal companions. We are thrilled to speak with her today. Alexandra Horowitz, welcome. Oh, thank you so much. It's a complete delight. You point out in this book that most books about puppies are how-to manuals. And indeed, if you Google best puppy books, you come up with titles like How to Raise the Perfect Dog, Perfect Puppy in Seven Days puppies for dummies, and so forth. 
your book is not one of these books, um, <laughs> certainly. Will you tell us what you set out to do in this book and what inspired it? Yeah, and I hope it isn't confused by anyone with a kind of manual on how your puppy can be entirely controlled and contained within a week because not only did I not do that, but I don't have the uh, knowledge and nor do I even think it's sort of desirable in some sense. Mm -hmm. In this, you know, I had never, I think like many people, especially people who adopt dogs uh, and maybe get them at an older age, I'd never lived with a very young puppy. And with every dog I've lived with, you know, I wondered about their early days and weeks and months. And there are all sorts of personality traits and behaviors, which one wants to connect with early events, you know, but it has to all be an imaginative exercise. And so on the one hand, I wanted to um, meet a puppy, you know, and have a good reason to observe them day to day, week to week, and see their development. And also because I, you know, I put my scientist hat on for everything. I wanted to document her behavior and then sort of correlate it with what the science shows is happening developmentally, cognitively, physically, perceptually at that time to kind of not just explain dog behavior generally from the get go, but also to try to understand this particular dog, like in a different way, more fully than I had understood any other dog I'd lived with. Well, and you you mentioned that many people don't meet their dogs until later in life or at the very earliest uh, until they're about eight weeks of age. And of course, as you write, this is a a product of modern society where in the past people really knew puppies and, and saw their births and their lives from the earliest days. But there's so much happening with puppies from day one and so many really critical periods that happen just in those first couple of weeks. I'm wondering if you could tell us just a little bit about what those first days are like for puppies after they're licked to life by their mothers. Mm, Right. I mean, I think one thing that I hadn't quite considered fully was the role of the mother, how, how she's so formative immediately, more than... Uh, one would expect. I mean, obviously, humans are often accompanying births uh, of domestic animals, but we're completely redundant. You know, she takes it on herself. But within several weeks, she's kind of had enough of the puppies. (laughs) And and it's they're um, learning primarily from each other and the new things they encounter. But the very first days of puppyhood, what surprised me the most was just how almost undifferentiated the dogs were from each other, right? They really, Mm. you know, they can't manage their own body temperature. They, their eyes aren't open, their ears aren't open. And they, they barely can move. They can't hold up their heads. They can scooch a little bit, but they're like an infant, right? Like mostly just where you leave them. And the only thing they really do is incline toward mother's milk and warmth, And so they're always in a pile together. And, you know, they were distinct. I'm sure they already were forming their own personalities. But they really felt like a group self to me in a much more profound way than I had thought before. And even though it's only several weeks that they really all huddle together, you know, the separation begins when the foster 
parent, the person who was fostering this litter, start separating them to kind of acclimate them to going to separate homes eventually where they might be the only dog and they might not be sleeping with anybody else at all. But I, I very much thought, you know, this is something I hadn't anticipated, this early complete contact all the time feeling and need and drive that they had. That must be in them forever in some vestigial way. And here was evidence of it plainly. Every time I saw them, they were in this big puppy pile. And it's weeks before they start to show us distinct personalities and go their own ways. The early chapters of the book stunned me on a number of levels. It's amazing to read about both the particular dogs who you're focused on, but also all the scientific insights that you share about early puppies. But I think I also had a moment of realization too that are quite, you know, sort of embarrassing in their simplicity. But one being that, you know, my own family's bearded lady fostered pup that we similarly to you got during the <laughs> pandemic had a mother once upon a time. And this really like this realization struck truly struck me as astonishing. Yeah. I hadn't, you know, I hadn't thought really thought through it. She had a family of her own that we never, you know, never think about or talk about or knew. And that also that I'd never seen, I've never seen a newborn pup in real life. Mm -hmm. And this is the norm now. Mm -hmm. when, we, when the dogs first enter the world, they're totally helpless. They're not yet, you know, their eyes aren't yet open and so forth. But can you tell us about what the dog sort of sensory experience of the world is like right away, what we know about it, and then what happens in the days that follow? So what we know is that they're mostly just tactile and olfactory creatures when they're born. And they have almost no motor skills, except for sucking and a little bit of kind of reflexive movements. Um, they, their ears are closed, as you say, meaning that the outer ear flap is folded over and their cells, you know, grown to close the space that will be the ear, ear canal later. Their eyes are closed, so their eyes won't open for a little while. And so any perceptual experience is going to be through what they feel with their mouth, with the with their little bright pink pads of their feet and through their nose. And that's really all they need initially, because their mother, who I agree, is really not a big part of our thinking when we when we think of our domestic animals, that they had a, a mother out of whom they came and who they yeah. initially turned to and relied on for everything does do everything for them. She brings them toward her. She helps the ones who aren't getting on um, a nipple, get on a nipple. She cleans them off. They can't excrete on their own. So she stimulates excretion and then cleans them up. She's doing everything for them and they do very, very little. In that way, they're very much like the uh, an infant child, but it's a pretty short, short-lived, complete dependency. And within a couple of weeks, both their eyes and ears are open. They're hearing almost everything. Their hearing gets better over time, but their eyes are well open, even though they're very nearsighted. They're moving around on their own. They start kind of perceiving and interacting with and noticing their siblings as much as their mother, although they always return to her. And, you know, any sudden arrival of her nearby, you know, leads to this huge excitement of dogs clamoring to get onto her. But over the weeks following, she, you know, she gets further and further away and then seems to even get irritated with them and often scolds them. 
makes it more difficult for them to rely on her. And, you know, that's as and they get more independent. But it's a very it's quick in a stepwise process of their perceptual and motor world coming online and her willingness to be there for them disappearing. It really is remarkably fast. Um, and by that third week, I love the way that you describe the different, the descriptions of, of the puppies that throughout the weeks. And uh, by the third week, you describe them as fat dumplings with tails. Previously, they had been furry lima beans. Then they turn into chunky bunnies and mouth with, mouths with tails, which I found just delightful imagery. Um, but by that third week, they really start sensing humans and they enter what you describe as the most influential nine weeks of a, a puppy's life, that socialization period where they're learning a trust and bonding with people. And that really forms the basis for their lives moving forward. And it was really interesting to me to hear that that was actually less focused on the mother, unlike with human babies, and a lot more about their litter mates and the world around them. Can you talk a little bit about what that socialization period is and sort of who the puppies are turning to for their introduction to the wider world? Yeah, the puppies are turning to whoever animate is going to be in their world. So that can be people. If they are to live among dogs, it will be dogs. If they are to live among, and let's say, herd sheep, it will be sheep. You expose them to, they're very susceptible. You know, I, I refer to Lorenz's geese, you know, who imprinted on Conrad, Conrad Lorenz because he was the first one they saw. You know, they don't have such a strict imprinting process where the first animal they see is the one they will always follow around. But in this socialization period, as, as you rightly identify as being so important for them, whoever you expose them to, they seem to be susceptible to learning about and are not fearful of, aggressive toward, anxious around. And so that could be, I think that's a special thing about dogs and maybe other some other domestic animals that they have the flexibility in that socialization period to be exposed to lots of different animals and become agreeable companions for all of them. And I think the thing that if I can expand on that a little bit, the thing that mm -hmm. surprised me a little bit about the socialization period is that it's not just about being social, right? It's really about being exposed to anything new. And so those can be sounds, you know, weird smells, sensations, vacuum cleaners. If, you, if they're going to be in a home, that's when you should, you know, vacuum by them and turn on the fans and have clanging from the kitchen and a child going by on a scooter, whatever <laughs> types of phenomena they're potentially going to encounter. This is the time when they're susceptible. They're kind of interested, curious, they can perceive it, but they're not yet fearful. That's just teaching them about the world in the most broad sense. What is in the world? So that every time you see green, you aren't terrified because green is everywhere. You know, every time you see a, a, a toddler, you don't shirk or attack because that's just the way the world is. It has toddlers in it. You and your and your husband and your son and the two dogs who are in your family at the time that you adopted Quid go to great lengths to introduce Quid to all sorts of stimuli during the pandemic, uh, since uh, Quid probably wouldn't have been exposed to as much given how locked down everything was at that time. And this, this happens a little bit later in her development. But I have to we can't have this podcast and not ask you, Alexandra, to explain to us 
what you and your husband took on with introducing Quid to ghosts and how that went. (laughs) (laughs) The ghosts were so great. Well, I mean, the ghosts, this was actually pretty soon after we adopted Quid and she was in a kind of secondary socialization period, which is appropriate. She's still susceptible to learning about new things and not, and becoming accustomed to them and not getting terrified. So I don't want people to think that if they, don't meet a puppy, you know, between the ages of three weeks and 14 weeks that there's no way they'll ever be socialized or used to people or cats or whoever they need to be used to. But um, I think this was about when she was a few weeks into living with us. And I'd always been intrigued by the approach of a Swedish working dog community, which um, met regularly um, in a forest somewhere in Sweden um, with their dogs, where they uh, expose their dogs periodically to all sorts of novel stimuli. And the idea there is that if you're a working dog, you really need to be okay with almost anything happening around you. You know, if you're on the scent of a missing person, you can't be alarmed if a train goes by suddenly or a plane flies low or a deer runs by. You can't be interested in that. You sh- you need to be kind of focused on your scent. So so it's a little bit of exposure to, to acclimate and, and it's a little bit of exposure to kind of habituate, get them completely used to it. And for some reason that I can't quite fathom, one of the things they do is expose the dog or see what the dog's reaction is to people dressed as ghosts who kind of slowly <laughs> walk out of the forest. <laughs> and I have photos of this work where, you know, they don't really look like ghosts, but they are super creepy because they're slowly <laughs> moving toward the person, uh, the handler, the owner, and the dog. And, they're, you know, somebody's there gauging what's their reaction. Do they run away? Do they bark? You know, do they try to attack this person or ghost? Um, and then... After this, also, they uh, they reveal, they do a big reveal. This isn't a ghost. You know, this is just another person. They gauge the dog's reaction again. So we thought, okay, let's try that. You know, we had a forest near, right, basically in our backyard. And so my son, you know, dressed up as a ghost in his own fashion way. It was a very fashionable ghost. It's sort of wearing a, <laughs> a hood and a caftan and... And slowly came out with a kind of zombie (laughs) walking gait toward uh, Quid. And that was really when we first heard her bark a lot, a lot, a lot. She had, had, I guess, what would be considered actually a pretty good working dog reaction, which is that is alarming, right? Like that is something that shouldn't happen. And I'm going to alert you to that. But she continued to bark even when we came up to him and then... Uh, revealed that it was the little boy who she sleeps next to every night. Um, <laughs> she's she was she was just stunned by it. So it was those kinds of like it reminded me a little bit of uh, you know the Piaget's approach of, of mostly mm-hmm. just observing, but like also doing little experiments with and asking questions of his children as kind of part of his work. He can't help. He can't just be a dad. He also has to be a scientist who's who's scrutinizing their behavior. And we were a little bit like that with Quid. 
Yeah, that was that was fascinating. You talk about um, Jean Piaget in the in the first chapter, the developmental psychologist who you know studied his own kids and and then used those insights and observations to shape his theories in science. And I'm curious, you know, you did this in such an intensive way with Quid, and it's it's amazing the the outcome, the book, and so delightful also in the stories. And I'm curious. So this was the book covers the entire first year of Quid's life. And I'm wondering how you did that in real time um, as you pulled it off. Did you research in advance of getting quid, the different stages of puppyhood, and then write as you went along? What was the process like? And, and is it something that you've continued now post year one of quid? Or is it just too exhausting and has, right. has the dog reached <laughs> maturity at that point? Good question. You know, I wish I'd had a kind of plan ahead of time to do all the research and then just observe my dog. But it was really happening all at once. Um you know, in fact, I had known that I'd wanted to follow a puppy. So I was trying to find a litter of puppies um, to observe. In fact, I was wanted to observe several litters of puppies. And I finally did observe a, f a few. And only one of which uh, I thought I'd be getting a puppy from. But I wanted to see uh, the progress of many litters of puppies. And I was observing this one when when lockdown basically began in March of 2020. And I realized, oh, you know, I don't, I bet nobody else is going to let me into their home to observe puppies. So maybe we're getting a puppy from this litter. And I kind of zoomed in on that. So I wasn't, I, I wasn't even sure when we'd be getting the puppy, right? I was just kind of keeping my eyes open. And I had didn't have all the research queued up. So I had I was taking assiduous notes of all our visits to this litter and other litters of what was happening every week and all the different characters that were blossoming. Um, but as uh, as I took notes on her, I was also going and doing research into that week, the next week of development, um, as well as drawing from things I already knew or had already kind of bookmarked about early dog development research projects, which are ongoing, which I um, wanted to read again when I got to four months, I would kind of put that in a little bit of a folder for, you know, look at this at 16 weeks. But mostly I was doing it as I went um, and making little drafts as I went along. And I have not continued <laughs> since she turned yeah. because you're right, it is exhausting. And I also think while I'm pleased uh, I don't know if she is, but I, well, I'm pleased that she was subject to the scrutiny because I do f feel in many ways that I know her, you know, I, she's not explainable. I don't know her inside and out, but I know her so well and so completely. And I, and she's been subject to so much attention that that's, that's kind of fabulous. On the other hand, there, there's almost such a thing as too much attention to be paid, right? Like a, I feel a little sorry for that, that she was subject to so much scrutiny because, for instance, my husband and son, who just enjoyed living with a puppy, didn't, um, not everything was such a big event for them, right? Every behavior she did was noted and discussed and, you know, maybe uh, attached to for previous behaviors or I was concerned it would be lead to future behaviors and I talked about the research behind this behavior, right? For them, it was just a behavior. It was over. You know, we moved on to the next moment. And after after a year, when I'd finished more or less the notes for the book, I released myself that scrutiny um, in order to just have some of that enjoyment of of just letting her be, frankly.
I was, yeah, so in awe of the detail that you were able to provide of this first year of her life and knowing the uh, really detailed notes and uh, assiduous process you were having to engage in, which having my own puppy at right now, just I know how exhausting the very active puppy ownership is. And the fact that you were then having to go from these sleepless nights of, you know, crate training and uh, staying up with her while she was crying and then go go back to your computer and, and type up the experience uh, sounds like, you know, doubling the the puppy fatigue. So just really incredibly, incredible chronicle um, of Quid's life. And I'm wondering if you could paint a little bit of a picture of, of what a kind of a, you know, what, what Quid's introduction to your family was like, because she had uh, two dogs, uh, Finnegan and Upton, who were at, at that point already um, world famous in their own right for their um, <laughs> being featured in your, your previous books. And then you had a, a cat, Edsel, and then of course your husband and your son. And you mentioned that Finnegan and Upton in particular were really the best teachers for Quid. What was it like bringing this third dog into your your house and adding her to your family? And what were those dynamics like? Yeah, I think I was I was very sensitive to what it was going to be like, especially for Finnegan, um, who had endured so many additions to the family since he had been the only subject of my husband and my adoring gaze um, as a young puppy. I was concerned that he would not take to it. Right. And so for the most part, uh, you know, she got the run of the house. Like she, she was the center of activity, but I very much wanted also to make sure that everybody had their own space and attention. Right. So even as she came in and we would let her smell everyone and everyone smell her and try to do things together. Um, I would then also take, you know, segregate Finn and take him for a walk or Upton or, or take Edsel for a walk. We would take her for little supervised walks outside in order that it, they didn't all have to deal with the puppy all the time. They didn't adopt a puppy, you know, they didn't, <laughs> they were consulted and it's a huge change in the dynamic of the family um, in every, every dyad changed. Right. Um, and the mm -hmm. whole family dynamic changed a lot with this little chaotic insertion. So it was, it was complete chaos. And the only organized element was that I saw even more and more as the days went on, how much I needed to individually take all, uh, especially the animals, the guys were, you know, the humans were okay, but take each of the animals find the things that would make them feel comfortable or, fam or familiar or attached to me and um, deal with them separately. And, you know, even by the end of the year, we were, they all could walk together. We'd have great walks with everybody together, but often we would walk each of the dogs separately because they just were really different individuals. So there was something about getting another dog and, and making this like big pack that actually split us up to, or made it easier for me to see clearly the differences between all of the animals and kind of what they needed, even though we were often just all together in one little living room. Mm -hmm. Those passages were especially visceral for me because uh, the puppy that we have now is uh, our second dog and our, our older dog mm -hmm. is actually also named Finn. So you were talking Aww. about sort of your, your guilt over the addition and concern for Finn's well-being. And it's something I'm very much going through right now. But I think that's absolutely right. Uh, it really, in many ways, um, 
it spurs you to, to focus more intently on each dog as an individual. And at least in my experience, and it sounds like your own, it's in some ways brought us closer together. Or maybe he's just jealous and is a lot more snuggly now because he's trying to <laughs> yeah. keep my attention. Well, knows what, you know, it knows you have more attention to give, right. frankly. That's right. Because you're giving it to that puppy. That's right. <laughs> Um, while while this is by no means a, a how-to manual for for a puppy, mm. I did find Alexandra in it thinking that you have a lot of wonderful ideas in here that I feel like are enhancing to both the human human mm. lives of those with puppies and and I feel like to the dog lives as well. And so and some based on research and some based on intuition. So for instance, you describe um, in the book studies that have been done, I believe with working dogs on how much dogs appreciate and uh, gravitate towards touch and human petting as opposed to, you know, verbal praise or other forms of praise. And then, uh, you know, intuitively, then you also talk about how you take your dogs on quote unquote smell walks, which I just loved so much where they're allowed to go wherever they want to go and smell whatever they want to smell. And you're along for the ride instead of them being sort of kept close at your heels. Um, and, um, and I, I was curious of what it, from this experience, are there sort of practical things like that, that you think that you would recommend to folks? Well, you know, and of course, not the not the focus of this book, but um, but things that you think are overlooked often that would enhance the lives of both uh, both dogs and their companions. You know, one thing that helped me a lot actually uh, does come from somebody else, and it, it was especially in the times that I was struggling uh, with sort of how disruptive she was and how she just wasn't like the other dogs, you know, and finding that difficult as opposed to engaging, which it also is, was a kind of game that a trainer, a, a wonderful trainer called Kathy Stau, S-D-A-O, actually, I don't know how to pronounce her last name, but it's S-D-A-O, uh, developed, where you basically look for behaviors that you like. And, and she challenges people to find, also, especially when it's really going, it's really hard with a puppy. I would say that's the day to try to find, she recommends 50 behaviors that you like and, mm -hmm. and reward them. So trainers are always about, you know, leading every, or are following every behavior you like with, let's say a reinforcement. So a little treat or something like that, or even just a good dog to encourage it, to ensure that more of it happens. But I think the part that was interesting to me was just finding the good behaviors, things that you like. And that could be anything that's just not um, a difficult behavior for you, right? So if, if Quid were barking a lot or something that I was finding disruptive, the moment that she's not barking, that's something that I like. And you say, oh, that's great. You're, you're, you're just silent for a second. Thank you, right? Like, or the moment where she's lying there not doing anything, right? As opposed to sort of feeling like that's a relief. Like I don't have to deal with a puppy biting me or chewing or running after anyone right now. Reward that just lying there. And also it's a moment for the human to notice how many non-annoying things are happening all the time. Tons of them. Oh, you look really cute. Oh, I love the way you tilt your head. Oh, you just naturally followed me out of the room at my heels. And I like that. Whatever the things are that you like, just starting to notice them and then, you know, one after the other. It was easy to find 50. Instantly, I found 50. And then you're focused on the things that are working out and actually all the things that dogs sort of have built in as cooperative behaviors instead of focusing on 
the disruptive things, which of course there will be. Um, that I thought that was a great, great exercise just in like attitude change and it, just in the way that I'm interested in people having a perspective change and looking at what their dog is doing or what their dog should be doing, you know, trying to imagine the dog's perspective. I feel like it's useful. It was useful for me to just step out of my attitude of like, is, is that behavior going to lead to another worse behavior or I don't like that behavior or that's disruptive to the dog and instead focus on all the things that were going well. Well, and as you write, it turns out that this is actually the most effective method of training a dog, the positive reinforcement training of focusing on those behaviors that, that you like and then rewarding them. And this also gets back to that idea that you mentioned uh, at the beginning, which is this idea that you can't really treat a puppy as a uh, machine to be trained, and uh, it's not something that you can have a manual to. Can you talk a little bit about what this portrait and these ideas of you know an idealized puppy and this perfectible puppy get so wrong about them? Yeah, it's it's such an interesting and pervasive idea, really. That. Um, and I think comes from the fact that dogs, for the most part, when you see them in the world, they look like cooperative, agreeable companions, right? If you, if you, I'm in an apartment building, if I look outside, I'll see people walking with their dogs who are more or less walking with them, like they're just professional walkers on sidewalks, right? And not barking or chasing things or biting people or urinating on feet or whatever. They're just, <laughs> they're just cooperatively going along like another person. And because of, because of that image, that's a pervasive public image of dogs. Uh, we, we kind of somehow are taught to think that puppies could be like that almost right away, or even should be like that. Right. And out of that has grown a big industry of, you know, I think, which is only trying to be helpful, helping people, to get their dogs to that place where they're easy to deal with, easy to manage, just sort of accompany you, are pleasurable companions and not complicated, furry, alien species in your home, which is what they are. Um, so all of those, and I, you know, I do think that we can get dogs so easily and rapidly, like in an afternoon, you can go from not having a dog to having a dog or many dogs um, by purchasing a dog without knowing anything about dogs. So given that, I think those kind of puppy books, training books are trying to help manage the person's expectations while also working toward that cooperative dog who they thought they were getting. On the other hand, you know, from my point of view, um, that isn't necessarily the end goal. Yeah, I guess I want my dog to be cooperative. I want her to be part of the family for sure. I want her to be easy to live with and love living with us. And, but I don't think it's going to come through, you know, learning a dozen commands. I think it's a long process um, and it kind of never ends, you know, you learning about each other. And that just wouldn't make as good a training book. <laughs> <Here's>, <laughs> you've got it. Congratulations. You've got a dog. Maybe if you're lucky, you have 14 years of learning about each other, you know, um, mm. and there will be problems along the way. Inevitably, instead, you know, what what's going to sell is something that kind of 
is pitched to solve the problem that the puppy is, which is um, that they're not that easy dog that you thought you were getting. Mm -hmm. You, your work has also shed light for, for years on, you know, changing, not just our perspective on dogs, but also I think making people rethink assumptions that have been very widely held about how we treat them physically. Um, Mm. and this book interweaves, you know, so well, the physical development of the dog with their mental development. And you've written in the past and, and, and to some degree in this book too, based on Quid's experience about the default state in the U S of being to spay and neuter Mm -hmm. pretty much all dogs before they're taken home. Quid, of course, you're taking home so young is not, is, is not spayed at, at, at that point. Um, and I'm curious if you could talk about, you know, what your concerns are about the current having that default of surgically removing the sexual organs of dogs so quickly and what impact that has on young dogs development. You know, I, I'm glad you brought it up because, um, I got, I've gotten very strong reactions on either side to merely raising the topic of, uh, the way we desex or spay and neuter dogs. You know, obviously I know as well as everybody else that, the policy was put in place and it became a universal policy in the US because of a huge overpopulation of dogs and which is is just devastating and if you spay or neuter stray dogs and you're going to have fewer of them and that's uh wonderful because many of them will wind up euthanized because there's no home for them so i see why it became such a widespread and popular belief such that uh you know bob barker could end every Price is right by saying, you know, spare new your dogs. Like it was just a, like a, a religion, right? And so then when I just talked about the fact that it might be something to look at again or, or have be more complex than just a mantra, there were people who kind of had, I guess, had been like in the shadows or had been talking about this for a long time and were like really excited that I was talking about it. There were also people who thought, ah, I hadn't thought about that and I want to think about it. And then there were a lot of people who said, no, like you're asking, you're basically saying kill, you know, more dogs should be killed. Um, and so I, you know, I really stepped in something <laughs> oh, <no. laughs> smelly and I knew that I had, I knew I had, and I, and it's still kind of like that. Um, mm-hmm. But I still retain a kind of agnosticism or at least, um, and I'm always interested in the kind of automatic assumptions that we've made or mm-hmm. we've been handed that we make um, culturally and individually about non-human animals and how they should be treated. And I think it's wound up with some deleterious results like their property, you know, that you can do anything to, for instance, about which you all know a ton, you know, and that's to me something that we just need to look at more, which isn't to say property is inevitably the wrong designation. I don't know. There's some good alternatives, but it's to say, let's look at it. And so here, this was something that's a long preamble of saying something I just wanted to keep looking at and keep attention on, which is because uh, basically if, if the reason we're spaying and neutering is so that we don't have lots of stray dogs that need to be euthanized, you know, well, what about the people who aren't going to let their dogs have litters whose whose dogs are within their control, as we say, you know, not able to go and find a mate when they smell a dog in heat or when they are in heat. Do why would they need to be spayed and neutered? And it's just kind of default that everybody is. Um, 
given the fact that for many dogs, there is a rate of disease associated, an increased rate of some diseases, sometimes bone diseases, sometimes cancers, depending on the breed of the dog, the size of the dog, sometimes the sex of the dog, associated with early spay-neuter, it seems to me even more something that we should just hesitate about doing automatically. And then third, you know, there's a reason we don't all just give young children vasectomies and hysterectomies because Mm -hmm. the gonadal hormones are not just sex hormones. You know, they're really important in bone and muscle development, and they're even important in brain development. Like they're essential hormones. They're also produced. Some of these hormones are also produced in the brain. For instance, this is another source. The gonads are another source of these hormones. So to just take them out uh, is is to affect them constitutionally, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so I just think it's something that should just be looked at, and people can decide individually. And I am definitely not here to give advice to anybody that they should or shouldn't do it. I just want them to see what they're doing to say, oh yeah, you know what? I, I'm not sure that I can't, that I can control my dog. And so uh, who she interacts with. So I definitely want to spare so that she doesn't have a litter that I don't want um, or from the male side as well. Or somebody says, gee, I, I have a breed that research has shown is much more likely to have early osteoporosis if they are neutered at a young age. So I'm not going to neuter at a young age. Maybe I'll wait a few years. Maybe I won't neuter at all. You know, I want people to make individual decisions that are informed instead of just doing the automatic thing that we're handed by 21st century culture. You've written uh, on other subjects as well about how society views dogs, their place among us, how we should be treating them. And At the beginning of this year, uh, you published an absolutely beautiful obit in the New York Times. Mm. It was not, of course, um, actually in the obit section um, (laughs) per, you know, New York Times policy, but for your beloved older dog, Finnegan, who was your loyal companion for so many years, who, of of course, also features heavily in this book and in Quid's um, early months. And it's a tribute to Finn that you write just like a a human obituary, uh, Uh, But then you also sort of get into this idea of why don't we write obituaries for our dogs? Why don't we eulogize them and and appreciate um, their lives? And you write about the common notions that that uh, you, you, you challenge this idea that dogs are not worthy of obituaries, both based on historical record, but also because, as you note, an obit is an actually a a perfect place to discuss our, our animals. Do you mind? sharing a little bit about this piece and its message? Mm, mm, yeah, sure. I, I mean, it's it was interesting to think about writing because um, as with anybody who has lost an animal who's been part of their life, they're still very much with you. You still are thinking about them all the time. There's a lot of grief. In some places, grief is not sort of even normalized or sort of allowed, but I think more and more it is. And you want to do something with that energy, right? Like it's just flailing around and you don't have the, in my case, the dog to, you know, sit next to and touch and and kind of give that love to. And I think at some level, obituaries serve that purpose. They like are an acknowledgement, public acknowledgement of, 
of a loss and the grief associated with it and the people who have been touched by that person or in this case, animal. And so I thought, well, why not? Why could that not exist for, for Finn? Even if it were just for myself, right? To write something down as a way of something to do with that energy and love. And at the same time, this is not actually in the piece, but at the same time, I was also like a little bit wary of doing it because I felt like I might be using him to make a case as I realized I wanted to make a case for this as just a standard thing that we're, that's a normal thing for us to do. And that even the newspapers of record might accommodate and have space for. And I thought, well, am I really going to use him again, <laughs> even in his death, <laughs> as like a point maker for me? Um, and I, it turns out I, I am, like I did. <laughs> and that was part of his life for, with us, was being like a figure who led me to think more deeply about how we deal with dogs. So in this case, you know, I looked a little bit back at the history of obituaries and found that there did used to be more, more sometimes news stories, but also obituaries of animals. I mean, there are many news stories of famous animals who've died that sometimes get prominent coverage in newspapers. But somehow over time, even as dogs have become bigger and cats have become bigger figures in our families, their presence in you know, like serious obituary sections has decreased. And as you say perfectly, Jen, like I, it seems like they're the perfect place obituaries mm -hmm. to commemorate um, this member of our family. Uh, and in Finnegan's case, maybe um, I got lucky that the Times would publish this because he kind of was a public figure in some ways, you know, in this very in this little world that I'm in of like creative nonfiction about animal minds. <laughs> he was a mm -hmm. real, he was kind of known and he would be recognized on the streets. And mm -hmm. so maybe that is how I got away with doing this. But my bigger point was really that this is the right forum for um, thinking about the loss of a someone in your family, even if it's a non-human someone. And I encouraged a lot of people who wrote to me subsequently to just at least write obituaries for themselves um, and share it among people who knew this animal, right? Or who they want to see what they're going through. I think that that's really can be a useful uh, thing to do when you're, when you're left with a grief of the loss of an animal. This is one of my all-time favorite op-eds in the New York Times. Mm. It should have been the obituary <laughs> section, obviously, but, but op-eds I've ever I've ever read. Truly, we'll link it on the website and in the in the podcast when we publish this because it's it's a must-read. We won't do it justice, but it's it's such a beautiful tribute to to Finnegan and also just such a, a masterpiece of mm. demonstrating Thank the you. need for this obituary through the form of the obituary itself which was just just so brilliant. And I'm curious, so the opinion editors at the Times embraced yeah. it. The opinion readers embraced it too. And there are all sorts of letters of folks who I think felt like me who, who were so moved by it. Did you hear anything from the obituary page and the folks there? Yeah. Has there been any shift? Oh, you did. Wow. Yeah. Uh, they, in fact, uh, my editor at the Times, who was working with Aaron Redica, contacted the head of the, the editor at the obituary section to kind of give him a heads up that this was happening <laughs> and uh, they were delighted that it was happening and they really liked the piece. You know, for them, it came down to 
well, you know, there's just only so much space, which is not quite true. You know, there's a lot of space (laughs) online. (laughs) You can really have a lot. But in terms of in the physical newspaper, there's only so much space. And um, I think they they saw the point, Mm -hmm. you know. And then I, I will also add that I subsequently heard from someone in, boy, I can't remember where, but I want to say Ohio, uh, maybe the week after I had published Finn's obituary, an obituary of a rabbit got into the obituary section at this smaller town paper. Wow. Just a straight obituary. These are like the paid notices, right? The paid death notices mm-hmm. where people write obituaries of their loved ones and a rabbit got in and there was even a picture of a rabbit and <laughs> the uh this reader alerted me to this and i was very interested in it and then she subsequently followed up with everything else that happened and what happened was that there was there were again these outpourings of there's well huge outrage by a lot of people that a rabbit was allowed in and then also just huge excitement by other people that a rabbit was allowed in um hmm. the editor wound up having to apologize or I don't know if he had to, but he wrote a letter of apology to people. Um, But he also said that they were considering having an animal obituary section as a result of the um, enthusiasm for animal obituaries, non-human animal obituaries. That's fascinating. Wow. Well, I'm glad the rabbit made it in personally. I'm all for it. Yeah. (laughs) Um, I'm curious, Alexandra, now you're someone who's incredibly prolific in sort of all sorts of areas of your career in terms of science, in terms of writing and writing for the Times, writing books and so forth. Um, And I'm curious, you know, I think, you know, you have a career studying dogs and particularly New York City dogs where your lab is located that many people, um, you know, including Jenny, look at and think, wow, like what a what a creative and amazing um amazing way to spend one's time at work. And, and, you know, perhaps we should have started with this question rather than having it near the end of the interview. But I'm, I'm curious as to, you know, at the start of your career, when you, when you embarked on this, what was the field of dog cognition like? And had you envisioned being both a scientist and a writer um, simultaneously? Or did you go into it thinking you'd be focused mostly on the science? And how did, um, how has the field evolved in the time since then? And how has your focus and thinking about what you hope to accomplish through both writing and science evolved over that time? You know, perhaps wonderfully, I I had no preconception of any of this. I didn't know that I was going to study dogs. There was mm-hmm. no field of dog cognition uh, at all. I don't think that mm-hmm. phrase was a phrase that was used there. And I I didn't anticipate writing about dogs. So none of it. <laughs> I, so I, I foresaw <laughs> none of it. I always was just, thank you. I was always just following the thing kind of following my nose, like just the thing right in front Mm -hmm. of me. And in grad school, I accidentally wound up studying dogs. I was just interested in non-human animal sort of entries into uh, non-human animal mind through behavior. I wound up being interested in play behavior. Dogs turned out to be a great subject to study for play behavior. My dissertations on dogs at play and theory of mind, you know, so that was like an accident. Um, and then subsequently, it just turned out that there were a few other people around the world who had, who also started studying dogs in their own way, you know, primate researchers primarily, who found dogs a really interesting comparative psychological perspective. And as a result, there was like a little bit of enthusiasm growing about research involving dogs. And I was also very interested in the fact that studying dogs had changed my way of dealing with my own dog. 
and that we have all these uh, ways of talking about dogs that are not based on science, that are just <laughs> in, intuitions, um, and that those might be kind of testable. And so I started looking at dogs in my own way. And in this field of dog cognition, I got to be kind of in the first wave of researchers who wound up studying dogs in their own way, right? And, and so very different approaches, actually, that have finally been filled in. The differences between us have kind of been filled in by all the you know, subsequent researchers that have come um, and are doing everything from my type of thing, looking at theory of mind or looking at natural behavior to doing like strict in the lab comparative psychological work on attention. And it was only a few years after I started researching and I thought more about how the research, not just my own, but others that was happen uh, happening out there, especially in Europe, there were a lot of researchers in, in Europe who were doing dog work, how much that had changed, how I was dealing with my dog at the time, Pumpernickel. And I thought, oh, maybe I could write about that. In fact, I had a, boy, I had an editor approach me saying like, you should write a, after one of my papers was published and got a little press, you should write a book about this. I, I gave him a book proposal. He decided he wasn't interested. But it sort of planted the seed in me. And the next year I did propose a book, which then became Inside of a Dog. And then suddenly I, I was off to writing about this. And there was a huge appetite for exactly the thing that I had found enjoyable, which was using science to like rethink how we live with our own dogs. So I guess that's a way of saying it all just came. Everything fell out of the previous thing. And I couldn't have predicted it. I didn't want it to happen, right? I wasn't like, oh, I got to study dogs when I was a kid. I never thought that hmm. in my life. <laughs> and in fact, I really don't know what will be the next incarnation of, of the work. I just keep trying to follow the thing that really engages me and, and hope that it flourishes into the next stage. Well, very happy for us that you you did. I know these are questions and issues that have been so personal and important to people for such a long time. And yet it's a field we've known shockingly little about. And as you point out in your book, there are still stages of dog and puppy development that are very unknown. But your work has just done so much to illuminate these very close companions of, of ours and the question of, you know, what, what does our dog know about us and and what, what do we learn about ourselves from our dogs? I, I want to ask, um, this uh, book is obviously uh, about to come out or is coming out in September. And you mentioned that Finnegan and Upton, your older dogs, had done, had featured very heavily in your previous books and played their own pivotal roles in, in shaping the field and educating people. And now it's it's Quid's moment to step into the limelight. How has she, I have to ask, how has she been over the last year since you wrapped on the book? And is she uh, ready for that that moment of attention? And is she enjoying, uh, you know, seeing herself on the, the, the cover and with so many um, interested people paying attention to that, that early life? In, in, in bookshops everywhere. Yes. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> What's what's so funny is that she's I don't think she's ready for her star turn <laughs> at all. Right. She her, her I mean, eyebrows she's are definitely ready. <laughs> <laughs> I know she she does photograph well. So I think she's up for that. But she's uh, she's not as easy. See, I considered Finnegan like a professional dog. I could bring him anywhere, you know. And again, I didn't I didn't train him 
to be like this. He was just that personality where he would go along with what I was doing. And if I brought him to a, a television studio, he would just deal with it. It wasn't that he would sit on command and do the tricks. It wasn't like that at all. He would just be himself in this new context. Quid, it will also be herself, I'm sure, in the new context that, she, that <laughs> might, uh, she might encounter. But that's less, just kind of less understandable as like classic dog, uh, you know, lovely dog who gets along with people. Instead, she's sort of really focused on the ball. And uh, if you don't give her a lot of attention, she might start barking very sharply. And, you know, she's so she's she'll be an interesting subject for people's gaze. Um but so far, it's going well, and she's had a couple of interviews and been, you know, mostly just a big eyebrowed, big eared dog that that people are happy to meet, which is excellent. Um, she had a hard year because uh, Finn and then Upton uh, died in, in January and then February. And I think, you know, understanding grief in animals is is certainly difficult and maybe imponderable and probably very individual for her. It wasn't obvious that she, she wasn't excited uh, uh, in the most literal way about their death. You know, she wasn't attendant or vigilant or anything, but she was definitely really kind of uh, sedated a little bit after they were gone. And of course, her life went from being around 10 siblings and a mother and a, a chaos of animals in the house uh, where she was brought up until she was nine weeks to living with these other dogs um, and a cat in our family. And then suddenly the dogs are gone, just no dogs. Right. And I think it must have been quite a shock. Um, and even though we tried to keep up a you know a pretty good routine for her, and she has other obsessions for sure, I think that's been a hard transition for her. Other than that, she's you know she's a young adult now. She passed adolescence and teenagerhood, and she's I look at her sometimes amazed that I have known her for two and a half years, you know, every step of the way, and that in a couple of years she'll be like a middle aged dog. And wonder if maybe I should subject her to more of that scrutiny just to kind of wring more time out of her and not let it not let it pass unseen. Mm -hmm. For as quickly as, as puppyhood happens, it seems like the you know dogs' lives pass even more quickly in some ways. Yep. Yep. Agreed. At one point in the book, you list 50 things everyone should notice about their puppies, which which is like a poem just inserted right in the middle of the book, which is so lovely, which which the book isn't in, in really like a manifestation of over uh, you know, 200 something pages of, of uh, what how incredibly lucky it is for one to experience all of these little things about a dog. And and so it's, it's really I think that was my favorite part of the book. And the uh. most moving thing is it makes you feel so grateful to get to share life with these creatures and makes you want to notice everything. Right. Um, and right. certainly makes you, it certainly opens your eyes up. You even have an inserted in noticing how it impacts your family, which is sort of a, a, you know, not the primary focus of the book, but woven throughout it, where you have your son's drawings of quids, many, many different versions of mm. ear postures <laughs> and, and uh, quids name itself. I guess, I guess, you know, we should, we should ask you as a closing question, also from your family and from, from your, from your husband in part, um, a, a very literary family, what does the word quiddity mean? And, and, and why did you pick that for her? 
Right. Yeah. So this was a, a, a sort of democratic decision in the family uh, where we all picked names because I think naming is so huge. You know, giving someone a name seems like a really big deal and also really fun and, and very personal. Just Oh, you have, you have such a great off-leash podcast on that topic, too, which we'll recommend. Oh, folks. yeah. I, 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 I could talk so much longer about just names. Let's do a just names uh, conversation. Um, and in this case, uh, Quid, which was suggested by my son, and I don't know where he pulled it out of the air, had had kind of be kind of final finalist for us in thinking about names and then was the winner. And we sort of lengthened it to quiddity because quiddity me- means a sort of essence of a thing. And, um, you know, there's a, there's a, a theory, a linguistic theory called nominal determinism that one kind of lives up to one's name. <laughs> and in some ways I feel like that's true. You know, she is kind of in some ways, the essence of dogs, right? She's sort of any dog-like characteristic. She ex- explodes that. Um, so it's a. It, I think it's o- usually only used kind of philosophically. It's a very sort of obscure word, but there's something about it, like the quirkiness of it, um, while also the essential dogness that it conveys, which feels representative of her. Oh, as one final question, Alexandra, we like to ask each of our guests to recommend um, several works, either it could be books, films, uh, music, or, or, you know, any, any work of art or writing really that has influenced how you thought about your work. And, and particularly, I think in your case, we'd be curious if there were particular works you'd recommend for people focused on, on puppies or that influenced, influenced how you, how you approached this. Isn't that great? Um, well, actually, there is a a book that I'm going to now I have to remember what it's called, A Thousand Days of Wonder by a developmental psychologist named Charles Fernie Howe. And it's not about puppies. It's about his observations of his young daughter in the first three years of her life. And I... I mean, obviously, I was influenced by that. I feel like I did something very similar to what he did only for a year and with a puppy. And mine was explicit, a little more explicitly sort of here's my experience and here's the science behind this developmental stage. And hers, his is a, his much is a little more experiential. But he what he did was just turn his gaze to her right uh, in that appreciative and scientific way at once. And. It's lovely. It's lovely, lovely, lovely. And I think that that, even though it's not about non-humans, it, it, like the approach was the type of thing that I hope people bring to their puppies. Um, so it's, I think it's a pretty good puppy book. It's just a human puppy. <laughs> what a wonderful suggestion. D- Dr. Alexander Horowitz, thank you so very much for joining us. It has been a great pleasure. I love speaking with the two of you and uh, I love your work and thank you for having me on your podcast. Thank you too to Ryan McAvoy, the Yale Broadcast Studio, and Daniel Block for their work on this episode. When We Talk About Animals is supported by the Law, Ethics, and Animals program at Yale Law School. We would love it if you would subscribe to When We Talk About Animals on Apple Podcasts or Google Podcasts, write us a review, and check out our website, whenwetalkaboutanimals.org, where you can find out more about Alexandra Horowitz and her four-legged bearded lady, Quid. Thanks for listening.